This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Welcome to another episode of Einstein A Go Go on 3RRR. Thanks to the team at Radiotherapy for bringing us through to 11. I'm Dr. Laura. Dr. Shane is not with us, unfortunately, today, but he has left the show within our capable hands. I am with Dr. Linden here in the studio with me. Good morning, Dr. Laura. And what a fool Dr. Shane is for leaving us here without him. <laughs> what sort of mischief can we get up to in 59 minutes? He said we were capable, but let's see. Let's see. Dr. Ray, what do you think? Good morning, Dr. Laura. I, I might say Shane, Dr. Shane, if you're listening, just turn the radio off. Listen to it. On, you know, we are podcast, and you can hear us on radio on demand. Yeah, so... So that way you can't affect the outcome. <laughs> yeah, good, good point. So, okay, let's make a start. We got news? Have we got news this morning? We've, we've got plenty of news, I think. Um, well, I mean, the big news is this week is a very special week. It's Medical Research Week, so all of our guests this week are about medicine. Is that right? We're going that to hear is about right. all so. sorts of amazing medical research. It is an important week in the calendar. It is ASMR week. This is for the Austra- Australian Society of Medical Research. Huge week. We've got um, lots of public outreach, huge number of events, and we have we are celebrating in the studio by having three early career researchers who are going to talk to us about their work. Anyone who wants to read more about ASMR, go to their website on asmr.org.au. Mm, exciting times. But before we get into that... I read an interesting story this week that made me ask a question. Maybe you guys can help me with this. What are diamonds made of? Carbon. Carbon, Carbon yep. That's We're scientists. Right. Well yeah. done. Yeah. Tick. <laughs> and where does the carbon come from? The Earth's mantle. Look at this one. What? Hello. Immunologist slash geologist. Literally, that's all I know. It stops there. It's carbon, earth's mantle. Any advances on that? Well, actually, I was in fresh science in 2006, and one of the other fresh scientists was a geologist that was explaining how when two plates rub up against each other, it creates kind of an elevator or a lift almost for for where di- how diamonds get to the surface because they, they, they diamonds form under quite a lot of pressure in in the earth's crust and and they can predict these and they were like faults and they would kind of call these faults or where these two plates come together kind of diamond elevators for lack of a, oh, a good term okay. but the and the the proof was that the predicted line across Australia is in the Kimberley, and there's three or four diamond mines on that that line but that's not telling me where the carbon actually comes from Dinosaurs? Ah, oh, dinosaurs. <laughs> Just always go guess. to dinosaurs. Well, this new study that's come out this week, it's from Macquarie University, but there are also researchers involved from Germany and France. These guys have shown that for some diamonds, for many of the younger diamonds, relatively younger diamonds that exist, the carbon or the material comes from the seabed comes from ancient oh, I didn't know that. seabeds. Yes, yeah, so this theory's been around for a few years. If you look at the diamonds that are on fingers all around the city at the moment, uh, these are clear diamonds and they are pure carbon. But then we've also got diamonds that are not as clear, they're a bit more murky, and these are called fibrous diamonds. And these are the diamonds that you would use if you're making like your drill bits, right, or different kinds of tools that use diamond components to them because they're not as uh, well-prized by jewellers, I suppose. And so these diamonds that are a bit cloudy, they've got other little minerals in them. And the theory's been going on for a few years that maybe these kinds of diamonds, or diamonds, younger ones, um, 
can be formed by, like you say, Dr Ray, kind of two plates mushing together, one getting pushed underneath the other into the mantle, as Dr Laura said, and then they can get um, pushed up to the surface by these elevators, these kind of historical kimberlite uh, volcanic eruptions, kimberlites being the rocks that diamonds are generally held in, I think. Wow. <laughs> Uh, and so this is a theory that they've had based on the minerals, but they couldn't quite explain why the mineral composition in these fibrous diamonds were exactly the way that they are. They were like, maybe it's from the seabed, but it couldn't quite explain what they were seeing because these diamonds generally have a lot more potassium in them than people kind of thought. So what these guys did was they ripped up some seabed. There was a, a deep ocean exploration program that was going out. So they said, oh, while you're out there, can you just grab us some seabed, like modern seabed? That'd be great. And whereabouts, just in case we want to go diving? I've got no idea. I, I tried to find it, but I couldn't figure it out. Somewhere very deep. The diamonds are somewhere in the sea. Great. <laughs> Some treasure in the ocean. This is um, the very early parts of how a diamond could be formed. All right, Laura, just, just steady cool your boots. It's not good. So it, it just, we're talking seabed. So right now it's, it's all the things that fall to the bottom, dead fish, mm -hmm. whale poo, mm -hmm. and apparently some plastics now too. Uh, but but not quite a diamond yet, right? Not quite a diamond yet. So they took this deep sea sediment and then they took the rocks that you generally find around modern diamonds. They put them in sort of a can-type structure and then they exposed them to the conditions that you would experience in the mantle, like 100 to 200 kilometres under the surface. So 800 to 1100 degrees Celsius heat and up to six, I think it was giga hectopascals of Ooh. pressure. So that's... Uh, 60,000 times the pressure of the atmosphere or like the um, the lead author Michael Fuster said it was like having a skyscraper on your foot in terms of oh, the pressure. Okay, I like that. Right? I like so that one. A lot of pressure. Okay. Uh, they exposed these minerals to that for like 2 to 11 days and then they could see with all the chemical reactions ah, look at that, the potassium amount the sodium amount is quite similar to what we see in these fibrous diamonds. So there you go, seabed. They're coming from the ocean floor. So maybe some of those sparkles that people might have um, popped the question with over the weekend or uh, are wearing on their fingers right now could have come from the bottom of the sea. That is way more romantic than the story I read about diamonds last year, which said you can make them in the microwave. So oh, <laughs> not, not, not high quality. Sad. Ones, but, not high, yeah. But they can make industrial diamonds, or I think it's yellow diamonds at a quality where jewelers can struggle to tell the difference in those 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 processes where you said they exposed it to the, the conditions to make a diamond industrially, wow. well, they can make those or they make them from chemical vapor deposition. So that's kind of a nanofabrication technique where they can build up diamond that uh, is looks surprisingly lifelike. Oh, Beautiful. Yeah. There you go. Dr. Ray, what have you got for us? Not on diamonds. This is actually a, 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 a piece of research out of DeepMind, which would be Google, um, on artificial intelligence. And... Uh, it, it, it's a really interesting breakthrough, but it kind of goes, wow, we, we really are laying the groundwork for the robot apocalypse here. Um, because uh, what it is is they're, they're using uh, AI to actually, they're, they're trying to get AI to work in teams. So artificial intelligence programs, a lot of times if you have a, a bunch of algorithm, artificial intelligence programs and they're working together, each program is called an agent. Okay. And this is part of neural net learning, where the agents have to work together. That way you kind of get parallel processing and the, you're running the same program a bunch of times at the same time to solve a problem. And so how they were testing this is multiplayer games. So they've already had success at getting agents to play against each other in two-player games. 
chess would be one. But the, one of the real challenges is when you have two teams playing each other, how do you get all those artificial intelligent programs to work with each other competitively against each other as well as work as a team together? And I mean, if you think about it, teaching teamwork to people is a challenge it's rather difficult to get computers to as well. And so what I found interesting is this article came out in Science from, from DeepMind, and I was really surprised because you don't often see computer science articles publishing in Science. They normally are in conference publications because it moves very yep. quickly and they don't have time for this. Oh, so, so this, it's not because it's not respected, it's just because the chain, like oh, it's, it's, the being, pace. it's moving so yeah. fast in that field, wow. Yeah, and, and so this has to be a pretty big breakthrough and, and to well be in ahead. science, for and, sure. And, and so what they did was is they, they, they created these new artificial intelligent computer program agents to play a game. And the game they chose was Quake 3 Arena in Capture the Flag. So for those of you that don't keep up on spending a lot of time on... Uh, uh, playing video games. Which is the rest of us in the studio. Yes. yes Dr. Ray is speaking to Dr. Laura and I well, right well, now. We don't have a Nintendo or an Xbox, but I do have a 10-year-old, so I know some of these. Not, no, I'm not letting my 10-year-old play quick. So it's a, it's a game where you are a first-person shooter, which means you sit at the computer screen and you see as if you're there uh, kind of looking out into a maze or a, some type of maze or room, and, and, and you're trying to shoot monsters. And you can play it with friends as well, so or, or teammates, and so you can have two teams. The capture the flag part is you're just trying to get to the other team's base and steal their flag. So it, very it, in terms of computer games, it's not terribly sophisticated. It's kind of like they're, they're one of their simplest team modes. And what they did was they, they got these agents to actually play in a team. Uh, and, 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 and it's the first time they've really successfully had them play in a team because basically it was just the map and whether or not they were shooting something. But they, they developed them with, with, with what they called rewards. So it wasn't just a reward. They had to give the neural net or the artificial intelligence parameters what's good, what's bad. Well, it's a reward to shoot things. It's a reward not to get shot. It's a reward to work with others because winning the game at the end isn't enough of one. And, and, and so how they train these, and, and so here's the other thing. They're learning every time they play. So they run thousands of simulations with these algorithms and let them independently develop as agents where they all learn how to work together and they learn what algorithms work. So, you know, and, and, and you see here thousands of games and you think, well, if people, the, humans do actually probably play that much too if they don't have anything else to do. But so thousands of games of, um, in a row and, and they actually did quite well. And in fact, in the end, they were able to beat human teams. Oh. Uh, and, and they had to slow down the, the computer reaction times so they were at the same level as human reaction times. This does not surprise me, but I'm thinking of what does a reward look like? Yeah, me well, too. Well, it's whether or not they, they, they survived or not. But they had a couple, they said it worked really well, but there's a couple things we learned. They, they learned that they, there were temporary hierarchies between the agents. So they learned to, all right, you're the leader, I'll follow you for this time so we can achieve the goal, which is, happens with people too and, and, and is very similar in patterns. The other thing they said is we need to work on making the reward structure so they're not the agents don't become so greedy. Okay. Well, that was the term in their conclusions. Uh, and they also said they really struggled that once the agents figured out the right way to do things, they tended to lose diversity in their learning experiences. They tended to all be very similar. So there was not a lot of creative thinking. Well, they, once the solution was identified, they all tended to, to learn that one. And so what we're learning from this is for teamwork, hierarchy is good. Can we learn from the computers? I, I think... I, I think they've, the, what they've really done is mimic some of the things we've already learned about teamwork, about organization structures under stress and when you're competing and things like that. But you know, it's not easy. We often think that the simple things we do 
intrinsically when we're we're making decisions and analyzing things you have to for computers to do that with that type of distraction discretion in judgment really takes a long time and well this sounds pretty amazing and and you go they think they could use it in a lot of different things and unfortunately it was a, a game that's more of a you know a competition almost a more militaristically um training them to do judgment this is still pretty simple in terms of what humans judge on so it's a long way off but, but uh, i like it yeah sci-fi robots. i don't like it i'm afraid that <laughs> makes me afraid well i've got a quick bit of news that i thought was worth an honorable mention because i just love a story that's a little, little bit kind of you know sci-fi revolution as well and this was also published in science this week and it's a huge deal um i just love it when something's engineered pr- to produce a spider toxin so um there was a big story this week came out just a couple of days ago that a fungus which has been genetically engineered to produce spider toxin can rapidly kill off in a very deadly fashion mosquitoes that transmit malaria okay i'm waiting for the reaction wow good reaction so why would we want to wipe out mosquitoes obviously Obviously. malaria um kills more almost half a million people per year in 2017 here's the stat 219 million people were infected by malaria um and it's a huge problem because mosquitoes are also developing um, insecticide resistance at the moment so scientists found this fungus that the spores naturally kill mosquitoes so when people say fungus I just think mushroom. Is this a mushroom? Yesterday I was walking out in a rainforest. Is Was it one of those mushrooms that I saw? It was not one of those mushrooms. Okay, so what does that mean, fungus? So fungus, that's, there's, you know, it's sort of like saying, you know, bacteria, many different types of bacteria within fungus, okay. m- with mushrooms being one type, okay. okay, you know, of that tree. I'm learning so much already today. <laughs> so fungus, think spores, think spores in the air. Mm-hmm. So this fungus, it can naturally kill um, mosquitoes. And so what they found is that if you engineer this, you know, by changing, you know, its um, genetic code to express spider venom, it can become super deadly, meaning you need less spores to kill off mosquitoes. So this is something they knew a long time ago. So within this study... Wait, what- they knew a long time ago how to engineer a spore to make spider venom? So, yeah, it's science, right? Don't, no, I don't scientists understand. Were amazing. How, what, engineering the spider venom, so they recreated the so DNA the, that looked like spider venom? So they are putting... Um, spider venom toxin into the fungus so the fungus can naturally express it. When I say a long time ago, I mean before this study. Because in this study, they let loose. They do a field trial. So it's about to get real. So they go out to West Africa and they've made an enclosed model village which has plants. It's it's a really large space. And what they do is they get a big cotton sheet and they hang it in this enclosed village. And this um, cotton sheet is doused in sesame oil. Mosquitoes love to land on the sesame oil. And the sesame oil is um you know mixed up with these fungal spores expressing the spider toxin and then what they do they release one and a half thousand mosquitoes into these model villages you've got two one where the sesame oil is mixed in with the with the fungal spores and one where it's not and then they wait 45 days and get this where they've just covered this cotton sheet single cotton sheet within this um enclosed model village 13 out of 1500 mosquitoes were left they'd all been rapidly killed off by the fungus and 1,396 in the control condition. Wow. So the 13 that were left... Is this the super mosquito? Exactly. Are these, have these ones been immune to this spider venom fungus? Um, I, think, I think that they go originally. I think that's where they, where they stop the trial. I think the, the thought is that it's going to wipe out the majority. So Does it sound like a good idea or not? <laughs> well, the, the other question is, um, 
the delivery they're talking about is, is very local. Yeah. So if you actually dispersed it, the question is, what else do you kill? Yeah. Yeah. So they've said that this fungus is really selective and it's only mosquitoes that it kills. But of course, you know, this is going to have like huge implications. Well, what, the, you know, what else does it kill? The mm. one without spider venom doesn't tend to kill other things. What about when you put it with spider venom? And the, yeah. and the creatures that maybe eat the mosquitoes that have been killed by the spider venom yeah, it's infused a good point. fungus. Yeah. It's a good point, but it is it is a first step in wiping out mosquitoes, and wow. it's you know it's a strategy that you know a lot of people are having when they think about getting rid of these um, vector-borne diseases. Mm. Cool it's fascinating that you could put it actually locally in, in where people live yep. and, and just kill the vector when it's just locally around people. Yeah, but of course the the sort of off-target effects is obviously going to be like a huge bone of contention, but it's a great first step. Three. In the studio we have Dr. Jess Lund... Dunleavy from the School of Biological Sciences at Monash University. Welcome, Jess. Hi, Laura. Great to be here. Happy to have you on, on radio. <laughs> Fantastic. So, Jess, you've been working on the biology of sperm production and male reproductive health. So, it'd be great if we could get into that. And could you start by telling us how sperm is made? Um, well, it happens in the testes, obviously. Uh, and it's a really um, sort of dramatic transformation, and it uh, requires a huge number of uh, proteins and genes. So I think about 82% of the entire genome is, or entire protein content of the um, cell is expressed in the testis, which is enormous. Okay, that's only exciting. Yeah. And um, are you talking about the, you know, the generation from a germ cell through to a sperm cell? Is that what we're talking? Yeah, so when you go uh, postnatal, so adult... Um, sperm development, you go from a spermatogonial stem cell, which is sort of just, uh, it reproduces itself and also sends a cell down into differentiation. And then that cell goes through um, cell division to create more sperm, and then also through meiosis to make the um, genome haploid. And then it goes through a huge structural transformation where you go from basically a blob that has a nucleus and a cytoplasm around it, like what we're used to seeing when we think of a cell, and then it gets transformed, transformed into something that has a tail, can survive outside the body, and um, is capable of fertilization. Okay, so as an engineer where my biology is pretty basic, I always thought stem cell and then cell makes a cell and then splits into another one and another one. So you're telling me each sperm cell, though, starts as something and then has to be transformed through a lot of protein work? Yes. So um, That's crazy. Are you excited, right? Uh, that's pretty amazing for cells. I'm like, <laughs> different pathways. I'm just learning. Yeah, it's a pretty intense process and um, lots and lots of machinery is involved. And Jess, are you working on what happens when that machinery goes wrong or what that machinery yes. is? Or? Um, a bit of both. So I study these things called microtubules, which are kind of like um, the structural, uh, I don't know, if you think about like um, in a building, if you have the um, framework of the building, microtubules are that structural framework for cells. And to transform a cell from, I guess, a blob to something with a tail and a highly sculpted head, you've got to change around that uh, cellular structure. So is the cellular structure that's associated with sperm development, is that unique in the body? I mean, does it have a specific structure unlike all the other buildings that exist in the in body? The body. Um, for sperm, they still use the same thing. So microtubules are found in all cells in the body, um, but they're 
um, I guess there's a lot of really specialised uh, formations of them in sperm. So they form into special substructures. For example, to shape the sperm head, we have a special structure called the manchette, which is sort of like a called grass... Called the what, sorry? <laughs> the manchette. Sorry, that's only my accent. Yeah, sorry, the what? Yeah. <laughs> We're all excited about um, that. And it's like a grass skirt that surrounds the nucleus of the sperm head uh, with st- sort of like the grass skirts... <gasps> We're all laughing in the studio at the thought of a little sperm dancing in a little grass skirt. Little, little grass skirt. Yeah. I'm loving it. It's a great little analogy. And so they, you sort of have this waistband that goes around the sperm head and then the skirt projects down into the cell cytoplasm and it kind of forms a sort of like, I guess, it puts pressure on the sperm head to make it into a hydrodynamic uh, shape that's really compacted. And then it gets disassembled really rapidly to get rid of it. So I understand that I always thought that sperms just had one shape, but I've re- learned recently that they've got all sorts of different shapes yeah. and they get all sorts of different whisking. So does that mean that they've all got different shaped skirts? Is that um, how that happens? Potentially. We don't really know, but Ooh. it's one of, uh, our fa- one of my favourite topics is why do species have different sperm head shapes? Because it's really different across the animal kingdom. Really? So humans have the little uh, pinhead, or so like a round sperm head shape that you Which is what we envision. Yeah, Yeah. whereas mice have uh, what we call a hook uh, shape, and it kind of looks like a little elf hat or a Santa hat onto the side. Um, And rats have one similar to that, but it's slightly uh, more elongated. Um, Other ones have corkscrew-shaped heads, it's really different depending that is on the species. Fantastic. Mm. But does that then make it hard? I know that a lot of research is done using animal models. Does that then make it hard if you're going to do research into sperm doing that? Although, I suppose, what what's the stats on how much sperm is made per day? It's a um, lot, right? I don't know about per day, but per heartbeat, a thousand sperm. Per heartbeat, humans, yeah. this is. Yeah, humans. Okay. So a lot. So does that mean that the majority of research done on sperm is on human sperm, considering these differences? No, uh, we sort of... We use mouse models um, just because then we can study the actual process. Obviously, people aren't going to want to give us chunks of their testes to look at. Um, <laughs> but we then correlate it with human uh, patients so because we can get the end product. And sometimes we can get some biopsies, but we can't obviously manipulate people's genomes or things like and that. And Jess, so you're sort of working in the area of male infertility. Yeah. And you've just got to give an honourable mention to the proteins you've been working on that you call cellular samurais because oh. that just sounds, you know, yeah, I'm so loving that. The katanans, named after the um, Japanese samurai sword katana. What do they do? So they slice up microtubules so that you can quickly remodel them into new structures. So are they good or are they bad? Are they the good guys? They're good. Um, but obviously, if you have too much or too little of something, things go wrong. So you need the right amount. You don't want too many because they'll just slice everything up and you'll get a disorganised cellular structure. But you also need enough to be able to remodel things. And so what is your end game in trying to prevent infertility? So we basically, I guess the overarching aim of the lab I work in is to identify genes that are essential for sperm production and um, then we use mouse models to do that and then we verify whether those gene mutations in those genes occur in human patients and then hopefully with this we can uh, when a man comes into the clinic we can give better evidence-based predictions based on if he has a mutation in a certain gene what the prognosis might be and how right, he might okay. treat it. So if um I saw in your release there was a comment that um, uh, infertility in Australian men is, is growing. And, and so you're connecting genes, but are you also connecting environmental factors? Because I, I assume that's one of the concerns about 
infertility in Australian men is yeah, so envi- either diet or lack of exercise or something. That's yeah, environmental happen. factors are also a really um, important contributor. Um, sperm are very sensitive to things like oxidative stress, which is sort of how the environment can modify um, or affect us. Um, and when your pants are too tight? Or when you, when your pants are too one? tight, things like that. I or assume t- so. <laughs> <laughs> I think there's um, data, one of the other postdocs in my lab, he studied mo- mobile phone radiation and its effects on sperm, um, which I think is being published soon. But yeah, environmental factors take, uh, obviously have a huge impact, and that's because sperm don't have a huge cytoplasm, so they don't have a lot, about, a lot of cellular machinery to deal with um, environmental stresses. Um, but we don't specifically look at that. And just what are the stats on male infertility in Australia at the moment? So one in 20 men of reproductive age are infertile, so 5%. And, and how do you define infertile? Uh, so infertility is not being able to achieve pregnancy within one year of trying. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's generally when a couple will be able to seek infertility treatment. And what do you look for? You know, the amount of sperm that's produced or how fast it moves or... Bit of everything. So we'll have a look at semen parameters, so um, how fast it swims, and not just whether it's motile, but whether it's progressively motile, and that means whether it's moving forward. Because if you have sperm that's just sort of wriggling about, it's not going to do anything. Um, Sperm counts um, and morphology. So a lot of what I study is how we get the correct sperm morphology, and that's making um, the the tail the right length, uh, not having two heads or something like that. Um, yeah. So then coming back to this samurai protein, yeah. does that play a role in this sort of morphology? Yes. So How is that working? So when we remove uh, a protein called catnal 2 which is one of the cellular samurais, sperm are formed without any tails. Also their head shape is really abnormal uh, and that's because the manchette structure that I mentioned earlier uh, doesn't um, get removed properly and it's too constricted because it's not being sort of its constriction isn't being regulated by the uh, cat now too. And so when when it's not there, things go really, really wrong. Um, and and there's uh, been a few studies in humans, I think, to try and look for these proteins that we haven't found. And just does anything else go wrong? Because, you know, I think, um, you know, something I kind of read in your write-up is that, you know, male infertility can be the canary in the cage for other issues. Yeah. So um, during my PhD work on this one, we also looked at its it's been linked to autism. Uh, there was a whole exome sequencing study maybe five or six years ago that linked this gene to autism in um, human patients. And so we had a look in our mouse models to see if they had any autism-like characteristics. We haven't found any yet. We did find an increase in something called hydrocephaly, mm-hmm. which is when you have enlarged ventricles in the brain, but we haven't published that data yet. We're still um, working away at it. But male infertility is definitely a canary in the coal mine for male health. Uh, um, what sort of other conditions has that been associated with? Um, so cat now too or male infertility? No, male infertility. Lots. So if you are infertile, you're male infertile, you've got an increased risk of testicular cancers. Regardless but, of the type of infertility? Uh, I'm not entirely sure, but I think... Hmm. Okay. Yeah. But with um, there's also an increased risk of mortality overall, and that's even when they account for health... Um, current health status and I think that's just because it's such an intensive process you've got so many proteins and genes being used that it's sort of like a litmus test for health overall so if something's and you have because you have so many cells being produced en masse going through processes that only happen at discrete time points um, in other organs you can pick up on things that in other organs might um, fly under the radar with um, 
yeah well Jess that's really fascinating stuff and thank you so much and we um, wish you all the best with working on your solar samurais and sperm thanks so much for coming on the show um, you're listening to Einstein A Go Go on 3RRR. Dr. Linden, I believe you have some prize giveaways. I do. I have a subscriber giveaway. Wild Rose, a comedy drama about mothers and daughters and music featuring Jesse Buckley and Julie Waters is uh, showing at the Lido Cinemas. Lido Cinemas. Jury's still out on that one. Apologies. It's being shown on Wednesday the 12th of June, so not this Wednesday, but next Wednesday, 6.30 at the Lido Cinemas in Hawthorne, and we have two double passes to give away to subscribers. So the first two people to call through to the wonderful Tim out in the green room will get two double passes, a double pa- so two lots of double passes, two be one. That sounds great. One each. Back to celebrating our medical research week here on Einstein Agogo. In the studio with us today we have Dr Shashank Masadan. He is from the Melbourne Dementia Research Centre at the Flory Institute of Neuroscience and Mental Health. Shashank, thanks for coming into the studio. It's lovely to be here. Um, so we're excited to have you here and your work sounds super fascinating. You're going to need to unpack it for all the non-medical researchers here. You're working on cellular senescence in ageing and neurodegenerative disorders. Yes, all of those. <laughs> all of those things. And the impact of iron. That sounds exciting. So can you start to unpack that? What is cellular senescence? Should we start there? Yeah, that's a good point to start, I guess. So cellular senescence is something I found out about during my PhD. And uh, senescence is just a cool word for aging. And the idea there is that uh, these are cells which have aged in a flask, usually. So when you look down at cells under a microscope, you see mostly cells dividing happily and you get a full flask about two days later but these are cells which stop dividing so these aren't transformed and they start showing this characteristic morphology of big cells uh, and essentially what happens is they start becoming becoming inflammatory mm-hmm. and then they're called senescent cells. So these senescent cells which are now big, I like that, I didn't know that, which are aging, are these the cells that are causing those neurodegenerative diseases such as Alzheimer's? Uh, that has certainly been implicated now uh, but the story kind of goes to senescence as a tissue uh, resident cell which causes all kinds of age-related pathology. So it's mostly in the last three years that people have started linking senescence to uh, neurodegenerative disorders and the jury is still out in terms of whether this actually has a contribution to the disease but there's certainly some compelling evidence now to uh, suggest that. Okay, yeah. and your specific area is working on iron and the, infa- and the effect of these biological active metals on, these, on the aging of these cells, is that correct? Let's just back it up a little bit yeah. first though because what do you mean iron? Why do I didn't even I know we have had guests on the show before that talk about this, but iron in the body. What? How much of it do we have? Where does it come from? Are you not taking your iron tablets? No, <laughs> I'm not. So, uh iron obviously comes from the diet most of the time and I think uh the general uh perception is that you have about enough to have make enough for a regular iron nail in the body. Uh in most organisms, though, iron is essential because it's what keeps your fire going in terms of respiration. So most of the enzymes in the body which are required to respire uh, have an iron center to them. Uh, obviously, one of the biggest diseases related to iron is anemia. So you don't have enough iron to keep those critical functions going. Yep. If you're anemic you're t- or not eating enough red meat, you're taking iron tablets. Exactly. Mm. Yeah. 
So uh, I tend to work on the other side of things where it's about if you have a bit more iron than you should have, what kind of disorders might happen because of that. So, okay, so yeah. Shashank, so there's a Goldilocks effect of iron. You want it so you don't become anemic, but too much iron is bad. Exactly. Okay. Yeah, yeah but I have a friend who has a, some type of too much iron in his blood, and he just gives blood like once a month. Would that fix the problem, Shashank? <laughs> uh, it depends what you have. So I guess uh, you're talking about something like hemochromatosis. Yes. That's so that's, that's an easy thing to fix. All you need to do is donate blood, and you should be fine in terms of the bad effects iron might have. But what we kind of look at is iron in the brain. And that's hard to get rid of. Okay. And you can't get rid of that by just changing your diet because normally the body doesn't have a mechanism to get rid of iron at all. So you can lose some by bleeding, but that doesn't usually take care of iron in the brain. So uh, we work on some pharmacological agents to do that. Uh, but yeah, so yeah, there's some things you can fix by just taking less red meat, but some you can't. So so yeah. let's then piece those two things together. You've got cell death and iron. How are those two things related? So uh, the idea is that iron can be toxic if it's too much in the cell. And that was certainly some the prevailing notion uh, till a few years ago. Luckily for us, someone discovered a cell death pathway in 2011 called ferroptosis. So ferro, of course, meaning iron. Ferroptosis. Yeah. I like iron it. death? Iron death, yeah. Death by iron. It's death the most iron. metal death there is, apparently. So Death metal. Death metal. Ferroptosis. Yeah. <laughs> there you uh, and, and the interesting thing there is it's not that there's too much iron as such. You just need a bit of it to be able to activate that cell death. So a cell needs to be primed to die of that cell death modality. And then if you have a bit more than average it will just accelerate the rate of that kind of cell death. So this matches quite nicely with some of the clinical data that is already out there. So colleagues from my lab have already worked on this previously, and we are still trying to figure out what happens uh, and why the cell death happens this way. So it's, it's been known that if you have uh, Alzheimer's disease, if you have the pathology for it, which means if you have the plaques in the brain, and you have iron, which is still normal, but above average, you decline in your mental faculties a bit faster. And till now, it wasn't very clear how that happens because iron is not being at a level where it's being toxic per se. But why would a, you know, why would a degenerative process accelerate in high iron conditions? So is this really changing our thinking about when we think about what, what Alzheimer's patients could do? Should they be taking, you know, should they be eating less red meat or? So, uh, as, I, as I mentioned before, taking less red meat might not help you after oh, you're a baby. So, uh, so. so okay, so, so rewinding just a second. So, w with your research, what can that inform then to, for something like Alzheimer's patients, you know, thinking about iron as that mechanism which you want to remove in the brain? Right. So, uh, we've got, uh, luckily, we've got some drugs out there which are quite well tolerated and they've been worked out in other degenerative disorders called one of them is called deferiprone which which basically catches the iron from your cells and removes it uh, the good thing is it actually crosses the blood brain barrier so that's a barrier which prevents most things from getting into the brain but this drug can actually take iron out of cells and then it can reduce your decline essentially uh, this of course is a new avenue, uh, not really new, but definitely something which people have started looking into more uh, after the recent uh, trials which haven't really worked out targeting other things in Alzheimer's disease. 
So uh, Defavron has worked already in Parkinson's disease in a clinical trial and people are looking at other disorders where iron seems to play a role such as uh, motor neuron disease and uh, our lab is actually looking at trialing uh, Defavron in AD now. So we're recruiting in Melbourne for that. Uh, and uh, yeah, so that that's the idea. You reduce iron in the brain uh, using a pharmacological agent. That's absolutely fantastic stuff, Shashank. That's, we wish you all the best with your research. It sounds super um, inf important in informing these disorders. Um, thanks so much for coming on the show. We've been talking to Dr. Shashank Masaldan from the Flory Institute of Neuroscience and Mental Health. Three, triple You are listening to Einstein Agogo on 3RRR. Here in the studio with us we have Aruza Sama, a PhD candidate from the Monash Biodiscovery Institute at Monash University. Welcome Aruza. Hi, happy to be here. Great. So you've been working on the effect of chlamydia infections and female reproductive health. Yep. So let's, let's talk about that. It would be great if you could start by telling us a little bit more about this STD and how much of a problem that is within Australia. Yeah, sure. So chlamydia is the most... Um, it's the most common sexually transmitted infection in Australia and so it's actually about 40 times higher than any gonorrhea cases or any of the other STDs and one of the issues with it is that it's asymptomatic so a lot of the time people have it and they don't know it so they're actually transmitting it from person to person um, and it's not actually getting caught and one of the other issues with it is that it's a major cause of infertility in males and females so about 75% of women don't have any symptoms but about 20% of them will actually form infertility as a result of it. So are they pretty much finding out they've got chlamydia when they're starting to have problems with fertility? Yeah exactly so a lot of times you won't know you have it yeah. and then people are struggling to conceive and they'll find they have um, things like pelvic inflammatory disease or occlusion of the fallopian tube so that's cl it closes up and they're unable to conceive. And so is this a problem that's been known about for a long time or is there are there trends in this over the last few decades? Do you know? So chlamydia and infertility has been linked for a really long time, uh, but since 2011 it's actually been higher in Australia than any of the other ones. The chlamydia rates or the, the infertility? The rates oh. and the infertility that comes with it. Mm -hmm. And so kind of the central dogma was with chlamydia infections you form something called pelvic inflammatory disease so um, kind of the uterus and the fallopian tubes all will get uh, chronic inflammation and the fallopian tubes will close up and that's usually what they're linked with infertility but more recently they found that women who don't even have the fallopian tube pathology are still struggling to conceive and so that's where my research comes in so I look at how chlamydia actually affects the ovary and the quantity oh. and the quality of eggs inside of the ovary. Wow. Okay, so let's, yeah, getting on to your um, research. Mm -hmm. So specifically you're looking at so the effect that chlamydia has on ovaries? or yes. Would you like to expand on that a little bit for us? Yeah, so women are born with a finite number of eggs, so a yep. baby is born with about one to two million eggs, and then that lasts the whole reproductive lifespan. That's very different to um, the sperm yeah. uh, development, as we were talking about yeah. before, yeah. a thousand a per thousand heartbeat. Per Completely yeah. different. Um, and so you have this certain... Uh, finite number that sit in the ovary and they go through the cycle of follicular genesis and then every month one egg is released but a whole bunch of those eggs actually go through that process um, and so what we're finding with chlamydia infections is that the number of eggs is depleting following an infection. So is the, what is the bacteria doing to the eggs? Well, hope, hopefully I'll find out during my PhD. Ah. <laughs> oh, that's what we're working Good on. Good question. Yeah. That's, that's fascinating. So that it's not known at the moment. So it's not known at the moment. So we're, we're the first ones to find that it actually is reducing the number of eggs we have and we want to look at if it's reducing the number of eggs and if it's also actually making the eggs that are still in the ovary 
not as viable to form a baby from. Okay. And so, um, and so how, are you, how exactly are you studying that? So we actually use a mouse model for, yep. to study this, and they have a strain of chlamydia that infects them in the same way that the human strain infects humans. So we're hoping to study it in the Wait, mouse and then... So it. how are you giving the mouse chlamydia? Should um, I like, not is ask? That like no, mouse, mice, is that like mice tinder? <laughs> um, or? <laughs> <laughs> you, you, you put like a. No, I'm not, I'm not going to go there. Yeah. Um, I nearly did. Like how humans get it the same way, but we're the facilitators. So you just put one chlamydia infected male in with a bunch of females? No, so mice don't actually transmit it, so we just infect the mice okay. ourselves. <laughs> no, I was joking. Mouse tinder. Nice, nice. Yeah, mouse tinder. <laughs> well, that's fascinating. So. Do you think that you're saying that the chlamydia might reduce the amount of eggs? Mm -hmm. Presumably, I don't understand how this works, killing off eggs and they where do they go if we've born with yeah. if we're born with a certain amount yeah. where do they go so we're not sure at the moment if it's the chlamydia itself that's doing it or the inflammatory response so a lot of the other pathologies we see in the reproductive tract is because the inflammatory response from chlamydia is so big that it causes all this damage so essentially your body is causing the damage itself and yeah. we think that's what's happening in the ovary as well where all of the cytokines and things that are involved in a, an immune response mm -hmm. are actually killing off the eggs because as they're growing there's all this like a cytokine storm there's like an inflammatory storm inside of the ovary and that's causing these eggs to die in the process wow and so you're also suggesting that eggs that are remained might not be as high quality what makes you think that so the currently we kind of have it based on retrospective studies where they've done in humans uh where they've seen that women who've had previous infections of chlamydia but they don't have that fallopian tube pathology they tend to have higher rates of miscarriage or poor IVF outcomes. Oh. And so something suggesting that something outside of the reproductive tract is causing that kind of um, issue, the issues with fertility. Okay, right. And is this sort of work, I mean, is Australia leading the way in some respects in this work or is there, uh, this being Yeah, done because of our koalas. So we're actually one of the leading countries in chlamydia research because koalas get it. Um, no way. Yeah, oh. so... <laughs> Um, so I work with a lab in Brisbane as well, and they do a lot of koala work as well. So are they finding, this is probably, you might not know the answer to this question, but are they finding a similar issue with koala infertility? Yep, definitely. And that's why really? it's a major issue, because they, they can go extinct if it's not oh, caught before. Oh, that's super interesting. Yeah, so my lab there actually is working on a vaccination for koalas to prevent them from getting chlamydia. Will there be a vaccination for humans? Hopefully, that's the that's the goal. It's a big, big jump. That's yes, the goal, yes. yeah. But um, you're vaccinating koalas. It's been, it's been a work in progress for about 30 years or so, but it's hard because, the, like I said, the inflammatory response from a chlamydia infection is what causes a lot of the damage. And so how do you design a vaccine that will induce an uh, inflammatory response but not actually cause the damage? Oh, okay. So I was thinking about, you know, the, the quite sad thing about chlamydia is, is that a lot of people have it and they don't know that they have mm -hmm. it. And it's actually quite treatable, is it not, if you are able to catch it in yeah. time if you were to get regular testing? Yeah. So you can, if you were to get regular testing, you can get um, an antibiotic that gets rid of it. But some of the issues we're having is that, that chlamydia is actually becoming resistant to that. Uh, and just because you've had chlamydia once doesn't mean you can't get it get again. It again. Oh. So a lot of the times it can also just hide inside of your cells. Mm -hmm. Just another thing we are seeing in the ovary is that it kind of lurks in there after it's been cleared. Does it hide inside the ovary cells? Yeah. Yeah. So right. it needs cells to hide inside of. And yep. the ovary, unlike the testis, the testis has um, a barrier that prevents the immune system from getting there. The ovary doesn't have that. So it's got a pretty nice little environment where things can grow and Wow. All right. So then in terms of next steps, what does that mean for you? I mean, your PhD, what you're in your second year? Yeah, just about to be my third year. Just about to be your yep. third year into the final push. <laughs> so presumably you're not going to finish with a um, 
like a an injection that's going to cure people yep, from yeah. chlamydia. <laughs> what what is your end game here? Um, I'm hoping to continue working in the kind of field of reproductive immunology. Mm-hmm. I think it's a, it's a really nice intersection between reproductive science and immunology. Um, and there's a lot of other things associated with it. It's a lot of inflammation in the um, reproductive system is associated with cancers. And so there's a lot of avenues you can go through with that as well. Wow. That's kind of where I'm hoping to end up. That's fascinating. And I, I guess a growing area. And it's good to know that Australia is leading the way yeah. in this research in lots of ways. I guess it's sort of sad that it's because our one of our national animals yeah. is <laughs> suffering so hard. But uh, it's good to know that yeah. we're doing some work in this because yeah. I bet there's a lot of people who would be suffering from infertility yeah. and thinking, oh, God, is that because I was really adventurous in my <laughs> 20s and maybe I shouldn't yeah. have been? I don't know. Yeah, and I think one of the issues with that is that um, it's highest incidence in people aged 15 to 30 and that's also considered prime reproductive age for females as well so mm-hmm. if you're damaging the eggs at that point there's no coming back from it well thank you so much Aruza. great stuff we Thanks. wish you all the best with your phd and thank you so much for coming on the show Thanks we've been me. talking to Aruza sama from the monash both biodiscovery institute at monash university you're listening to Einstein and Gogo here at 3 Triple R. We're out of time. We're going to have to hand over to the team at EDIT, Dr. Linden. Thanks so much, Dr. Laura. I think we survived. I think we survived Dr. Shenfrey. Although a little Do you bit, reckon he's still listening? Uh, I think so. It probably is somewhere. Uh, it's good to hear about all this research, although I'm sort of a bit depressed now about all of these problems within our amazing body, how incredible our but bodies are. But we're working to fix them. Medical Research yeah. Week. We're celebrating science here today. Dr. Ray? Uh, Dr. Laura, it was fun. I think Dr. Shane can go away more often. I think today was a really fun show. Yeah. Uh, and great job. <laughs> so, yeah, well done. We'll be back next week. Dr. Shane will be back with more science for you. Thanks for tuning in. So until then, this is Einstein and Gogo handing over to Edith. Remember, science is everywhere. And thanks for listening to 3 R. This has been a podcast oh. from 3 R, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly oh. independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.